Section 25 of Mars and Its Canals. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mars and Its Canals by Percival Lowell. Part 3 The Canals in Action. Chapter 23 Canals. Kinematic. So far in our account of the phenomena, we have regarded the lines, the spots, and everything that is theirs, solely from the point of view of their appearance at any one time. In other words, we have viewed them only from a static standpoint. In this we have followed the course of the facts, since in this way were the canals first observed. We now come to a different phase of the matter, the important disclosure with continued looking, that these strange things show themselves to be subject to change. That is, they take on a kinematic character. This at once opens a fresh field of inquiry concerning them and widens the horizon of research. It increases the complexity of the problem, but at the same time makes it more determinate. For while it greatly augments the number of facts which must be collected toward an explanation of what the things are, these once acquired, it narrows the solution which can apply to them. The fact of change in the Martian markings forces itself upon anyone who will diligently study the planet. He will be inclined at first to attribute to observational mistakes of his own or of his predecessor's making, preferably the latter, but eventually his own delineations will prove irreconcilable with one another, and he will then realize the injustice of his inference and will put the cause where indeed it rightly belongs, on the things themselves. Confronted by this fact, he will the more fully appreciate how long and systematic must be the study of him who would penetrate the planet's peculiarity. Just as the recognition of something akin to seasonal change came to Schiaparelli, because of his attending to the planet with an assiduity unknown to his predecessors, so it became evident that to learn the laws of these changes, and from them the meanings of the markings, there was necessary as full and as continuous a record of them as it was possible to obtain. For this end, it was not enough to get observations from time to time, however good these might be, but to secure as nearly as might be a complete succession of such, day after day, month after month, and opposition after opposition. The outcome justified the deduction, and it is specially gratifying to realize that no one have the method and the results thus obtained appealed with more force than Schiaparelli himself. Perseverance in scanning the desk, long after the casual observer had considered it too far away for observational purposes, resulted in Schiaparelli's detection of the canals, and this through a characteristic of theirs destined to play a great part in their history, their susceptibility to change. He tells us in his Memoria I how area and the adjoining regions showed blank of any markings while the planet was near in 1877 and the disk large and well shown, and then how to his surprise, as the planet got farther away and the disk shrank, lines began to come out in the region with unmistakable certainty. 
thus to the very variability which had hidden them to others, was due in Schiaparelli's hands their initial recognition. Flux affecting the canals was apparent from the outset of my own observations, no less the subject of transformation than the large dark regions was the network of tenuous lines that overspread them. At times they were very hard to make out, and then again they were comparatively easy. Distance, instead of rendering them more difficult, frequently did the reverse. Nor was the matter one of veiling. Neither our own atmosphere nor that of Mars showed itself in any way responsible for their temporary disappearance. It was not always when our atmospheric conditions were best that the lines stood out most clearly, and as to Martian meteorology, there was no sign that it had anything whatever to do with their obliteration. Long before the canals were dreamt of, veiling by Martian clouds or mist had been considered the cause of these changes in the planet's general features, which are too extensive and deep-toned wholly to escape observation even though none too clearly seen. It was early evident to me that they were not the cause of general topographic change, and equally clearly as inoperative as those that affected the canals. In short, nothing extrinsic to the canal caused its disappearance. Whatever that change was, its action lay intrinsic to the canal itself. On occasion, Canals in whole regions appeared to be blotted out. The most careful scrutiny would fail to disclose them, where some time before they had been perfectly clear, and this, though distance was at a minimum and definition at its best. Even the strongest marked of the strange pencil lines would show at times only as ghosts of their former selves, while for their more delicate companions— it taxed one's faith to believe that they could ever really have existed. Illumination was involved to account for this, and plays a part in the effect undoubtedly. For at plumb opposition, the center of the disk for two or three years had shown less detail than before and after the event. This is probably due not, as with the moon, to the withdrawal of shadows, but to the greater glare to which the disk is then subjected, but this is not the chief cause of the change. Still more striking and unaccountable was the fact that each canal had its own times and seasons for showing or remaining hid. Each had its entrances upon the scene and its exits from it. What dated the one left another unaffected. The Neolacaris was to be seen when the Chrysohorus was invisible, and the Jamuna perfectly evident when the Indus could scarcely be made out. So much shows in the two drawings here reproduced. The increase of the Ganges and the advent of the Chrysohors are noticeably in the second over the first. Seasonal changes seem the only thing to account for the phenomenon, and in a general sense this was undoubtedly the explanation. To learn more about the matter, to verify if it existed, and to particularize it if possible, I determined to undertake an investigation permitting of quantitative precision in the case. A method of doing this occurred to me which would yield results deserving of consideration, from the amount of data upon which each was based, and capable of being compared with one another, upon an equal footing from which relative information could be derived, 
it seemed wise to determine from the drawings the degree of visibility of a given canal at different seasons of the Martian year, and then to do this for every important canal during the same period of time. The great number of the drawings suggested this use to which they might be put, for from a great accumulation of data, a set of statistics on the subject could be secured in which accident or bias would be largely eliminated and the telling effect of averages make itself felt. To render this possible, it was necessary that the drawings should be alike numerous, consecutive, and extended in time. These conditions were fulfilled by the drawings made by me at the opposition of 1903. 372 drawings had then been secured, and they covered between them a period of six months and a half. They were also as consecutive as it was possible to secure. During a part of the period, the planet was seen and drawn at every 24 hours, from April 5th, namely, to May 26th, or for 46 consecutive days. Though the rest of the time did not equal this perfection, no great gap occurred, and 143 nights were utilized in all. Furthermore, as these drawings were all made by one man, the personal equation of the observer, a very important source of deviation where drawings are to be compared, was eliminated. But even this does not give an idea of the mass of the data. For by the method employed, about a hundred drawings were used in the case of each canal, and as 109 canals were examined, this gave 10,900 separate determinations, upon which the ultimate result depended. That each of these determinations was independent of the others will appear from a description of the method itself on which the investigation was conducted. To understand that method, one must begin a little way back. As the two planets, Mars and the Earth, turn on their axes, the parts of their surfaces they present to each other are constantly changing. For a feature on Mars to be visible from a given post on Earth, observer and observed must confront each other. And furthermore, it must be day there when it is night here. But as Mars takes about 40 minutes longer to turn than the Earth, such confronting occurs later and later each night about 40 minutes until finally it does not occur at all while Mars is suitably above the horizon. Then the feature passes from sight, to remain hidden till the difference of the rotations brings it round into view again. There are thus times when a given region is visible, times when it is not, and these succeed each other in from five to six weeks, and are called presentations. For about a fortnight, at each presentation, a region is centrally enough placed to be well seen, for the rest of the period either ill-placed or on the other side of the planet. If a marking were always salient enough, it would appear in every drawing made of the disk during the recurrent fortnights of its display. If it were weaker than this, it might appear on some drawings and not on others, dependent upon its own strength and upon the definition at the moment and we should have a certain percentage of visibility for it at that presentation. While if it changed in strength between one presentation and the next, the percentage of its recording would change likewise. Definition, of course, is always varying. But if its value be noted at the time of each drawing, this factor may be allowed for more or less successfully. 
making such allowance, together with other corrections to produce extrinsic equality, such as the planet's distance, which we need not enter upon here, we are left with only the marking's intrinsic visibility to affect the percentages. That is, the percentages tell of the changes it has successively undergone, and give us a history of its wax and wane. From drawings accurately made, it is possible to add to the accuracy of the percentage by noting in each not only the presence or absence of the marking, but the degree of strength with which it is represented. This was done in the final investigation in the present case, and it was interesting to note how little difference it made in the result. The longitude of each canal was known, and the longitude of the central meridian of each drawing was also calculated and tabulated with a drawing, so that it was possible to tell which drawings might have shown the canal. Only when the position of the canal was within a certain number of degrees of the center of the drawing, 60 degrees, was the drawing used in the result, allowance being duly made for the loss upon the phase side. Each drawing, it should be remembered, was as nearly an instantaneous picture of the disk as possible. It covered only a few minutes of observation, and was made practically as if the observer had never seen the planet before. In other words, the man was sunk in the manner. Such mental effacement is as vital to good observation as mental assertion is afterward to pregnant reasoning. For a man should be a machine in collecting his data, a mind in coordinating them. To reverse this process, as is sometimes done, is not conducive to science. When the successive true percentages of visibility of a given canal had thus been found, they were plotted vertically at points along a horizontal line corresponding in distance from the origin to the number of days after or before the summer solstice of the Martian northern hemisphere. The horizontal distance thus measured the time while the vertical height gave the relative visibility. The points so plotted were then joined by a smooth curve. This curve reproduced the continuous change in visibility undergone by the canal during the period under observation. It gave a graphic picture of the canal's change of state. It seemed, therefore, proper to call it the canal's cartouche, or sign manual. In this manner were obtained the cartouches of 109 canals. Now, as the presence or absence of any canal in any drawing was entirely irrespective of the presence or absence of another, each such datum spoke only for itself, and was an entirely independent observation. The whole investigation thus rested on 10,900 complete separate determinations, each as unconditioned by the others as if it existed alone. As every factor outside of the canal itself which could affect the latter's visibility was taken account of, and the correction due to it as nearly as possible applied before the cartouches were deduced, the latter represent the visibility of the canal due to intrinsic changes alone. In other words, they give not the apparent only, but the real history of the canal for the period concerned. Important disclosures result from inspection of the cartouches. This we shall perceive by considering what different curves mean in the case. If the canal were an unchangeable phenomenon for any reason whatever, its cartouche would be a straight line, 
parallel to the horizon of the diagram. This is evident from the fact that the visibility would then never vary. If, on the other hand, it were waxing and waning, and the wax or wane were uniform, the cartouche would be a straight line inclined to the horizontal, rising if the canal were increasing, falling when it decreased. Lastly, if the rate of change itself varied, the cartouche would be a curve, concave or convex, to the line denoting the time, according as the rate of change of the growth or decay grew greater or less. To see this more clearly, we may set over against the cartouche the canal character it signalizes. If the cartouche is a horizontal straight line, the character of the canal is invariable. If the cartouche is a straight line tilted up on the right, the character of the canal is increasing steadily. If the cartouche is a straight line tilted up on the left, the character of the canal is decreasing steadily. If the cartouche is a curved line descending concave from above, the character of the canal decreasing but more and more slowly. If the cartouche is a curved line ascending concave from above, the character of the canal is decreasing but more and more slowly. If the cartouche is a curved line descending convex from above, the character of the canal is decreasing more and more rapidly. If the cartouche is a curved line ascending convex from above, the character of the canal is increasing more and more slowly. If the cartouche is a curved line first descending, then ascending concave from above throughout, the character of the canal is decreasing more and more slowly to a minimum, thence increasing more and more rapidly. If the cartouche is a curved line first descending, then ascending, convex from above throughout, then the character of the canal is increasing more and more slowly to a maximum, thence decreasing more and more rapidly. If the cartouche first falls and then rises, this shows the canal to have passed through a minimum state at the time denoted by the point of inflection. If it rises first and falls afterward, this betokens in the same way a maximum. Thus the cartouches reveal to us the complete history of the canals, what changes they underwent, and the times at which these occurred. The cartouche, then, is the graphic portrayal of the canal's behavior. It not only distinguishes at once between the dead and the living, as we may call the effect of intrinsic change, but it tells the exact character of this change, the way it varied from time to time, the epoch at which the development was at its minimum or its maximum for any given canal, and lastly, its actual strength at any time, thus giving its relative importance in the canal system. For the height of the curve above the diagrammatic horizon marks the absolute as well as the relative visibility, and enables us to rank the canals between themselves. Now the first point it furnishes a criterion for is the real or illusory character of the canals. If a line be due to illusion, whether optical or physical, it can vary only from extrinsic cause, since it has no intrinsic existence. If, therefore, all extrinsic cause be allowed for, 
the cartouche of this ghost must needs be a horizontal straight line if the extrinsic factors to its production be imperfectly accounted for their attention could only cause systematic variations from the straight line in all the lines which would themselves vary systematically and these factors could therefore be detected this criterion is absolute unless all the cartouches were approximately straight lines no illusion theory of any kind whatever could explain the facts even then the lines might all be real for unchangeable reality would produce the same effect on the cartouches as illusion in the case therefore of horizontal straight line cartouches we should have no guarantee on that score of reality or illusion but on the other hand curves or inclined straight lines in them would be instantly fatal to all illusion theories turning now to the one hundred and nine cartouches obtained in nineteen o three the first point to strike one's notice is that all but three of them are curves and that even these three must be accepted with a caveat here then the cartouches dispose once and for all of any and every illusion theory they show conclusively that the canals are real objects which wax and wane from some intrinsic cause the second result afforded by the cartouches is not of a destructive negative character however valuable the destruction of bars to knowledge may be but of a constructive positive one it does not like the first follow from mere inspection but is brought to light only by comparison of all the cartouches in a positive way therefore its testimony is as conclusive as it was in a negative direction for that ten thousand nine hundred separate and independent data should result in a general law of development through either conscious or unconscious bias when those data would have to be combined in so complicated a manner for the result to emerge as is here the case is impossible chance could not do it and consciousness would require a coordinate memory to which murphy's nine games of chess at once would be child's play of the one hundred and nine canals examined one hundred and six showed by their cartouches that they had been during the whole or part of the period in a state of change but the change was not the same for all in some the minimum came early in others late some decreased to nothing and stayed there others increased from zero and were increasing still at the time observations closed latitude proved the means of bringing comparative order out of the chaos when the canals were ranged according to their latitude on the planet a law in their development came to light to understand it the circumstances under which the canals were presented must be considered as regards the then season of the planet's year in 1903 the planet passed on february 28th through the point of its orbit where the summer solstice of the northern hemisphere occurs one hundred and twenty-six days later took place the first snowfall in the arctic and subarctic regions an event that denoted the beginning of the new polar cap from which date the snow there gradually increased its autumnal equinox the planet did not reach till august twenty-ninth 
Now the canals were observed from 36 days before the summer solstice of the northern hemisphere to 147 days after that event. We may tabulate the dates as follows. Minus 30 days from the summer solstice, the vernal longitude was 77 degrees. The corresponding date on Earth was June 9th. On the day of the summer solstice, the vernal longitude of 90 degrees corresponds to the date on Earth, June 22nd. 30 days from the summer solstice, the vernal longitude was 103 degrees. The corresponding date on Earth was July 6th. 60 days after the summer solstice, 117 degrees vernal longitude, corresponding date on Earth, was July 20th. 90 days from the summer solstice, the vernal longitude was 131 degrees, and the corresponding date on Earth was August 4th. On August 20th, 120 days from the summer solstice, the vernal longitude was 146 degrees. And on September 5th, 150 days from the summer solstice, the vernal longitude was 162 degrees. The vernal longitude is the longitude of the planet in its orbit, reckoned from the vernal equinox. From the table, it appears that the cartouches cover the development of the canals from about June 6th to September 1 of the Martian Northern Hemisphere, for the current, but to us, undated year, ab Marta Candita. The 109 canals included all the more conspicuous canals on the planet at that opposition, all those that lent themselves by the sufficient frequency with which they were seen to a statistical result. They lay spread all the way between the edge of the polar cap in latitude 87 degrees north to the extreme limit south, at which the then tilt of the North Pole toward the Earth permitted of canal recognition. This southern limit was in about latitude 35 degrees south. Further south than this, vision became too oblique, amounting, as it did, with an adverse tilt of 25 degrees to start with, to something over 60 degrees, for detection of such fine markings to be possible. Between the two limits thus imposed by the perpetual snow on the one side and the observational tilt on the other, the 109 canals were distributed by zones as follows. On the North Polar, 87 degrees north to 78 degrees north, one canal. In the Arctic zone, 78 degrees north to 66 degrees north, nine canals. In the subarctic zone, 66 degrees north to 51 degrees north, nine canals. In the north temperate zone, 51 degrees north to 37 degrees north, 11 canals. In the north subtropic zone, 37 degrees north to 24 degrees north, 18 canals. In the north tropic zone, 24 degrees north to 12 degrees north, 21 canals. In the north equatorial, 12 degrees north to 0 degrees north, 14 canals. South equatorial, 0 degrees north to 12 degrees south, 17 canals. South Tropic Zone, 12 degrees south to 24 degrees south, 7 canals. South Subtropic Zone, 24 degrees south to 37 degrees south, 2 canals. 
as the latitude of a canal in the investigation was taken as that of its midpoint, such being the mean value of its successive parts, the latitudes about which information was obtained lay within the limits given above. The most northern canal, the Jakartus North, having for its mid-latitude 78 degrees north, and the most southern, the Nectar, that of 27 degrees south. The zones comprised each a belt of territory about 13 degrees wide, the first being less solely because in part occupied by the permanent solar cap. The curves of all the canals in a given zone have been combined into a mean curve or cartouche for that zone, and then the cartouches for the several zones have been represented and ranged according to latitude on the accompanying plate. Consideration of these mean canal cartouches is very instructive. In the first place, not one of them is a straight line, either horizontal or inclined. All are curves. And with the exception of the top one, all show a minimum or lowest point during the period under observation. From this point, they rise with the time or to the right of the plate. A black star marks the minimum and is found farther and farther to the right as one goes down the plate, that is, as one travels from the neighborhood of the Arctic regions down to the equator and then over into the planet's southern hemisphere. Drawing now a line approximately through the stars, and remembering that the minimum means the date at which the canal started to develop, we see that the canal development began at the border of the north polar cap, and thence continued down the disk over the planet's surface as far as observation permitted the surface to be seen, which was some 35 degrees into the other hemisphere. This is the first broad fact disclosed by the cartouches. Furthermore, the development took place at an approximately uniform rate. This is shown by the fact that the line passing through the black stars is approximately straight. For such straightness, means that progression down the disk, as measured by the latitude, bore throughout the same ratio to the time elapsed. Looking at them again, we notice that the three topmost cartouches, those of the North Polar, Arctic, and Subarctic canals respectively, dip at the right before the end of the observations, while the other seven were still rising when those observations were brought to a close. A reason for this, or at least a significant coincidence, is to be found in the dotted line pendant from the top of the table and labeled First Frosts. This dotted line denotes the date at which the first extensive frost occurred in the polar regions, for even before this time, patches of white had appeared north of the Marcus Sigelium, denoting the oncoming of the cold. The frost did not last but came and went and came again just as it does on earth, growing more insistent and long-lived at each fresh fall. Its sphere of operation was confined to the three zones in question. Even these zones it by no means covered, merely blotching them in places with fungi-like patches of frost. Beyond them south, it never extended during the period of the observations. Indeed, it hardly entered the subarctic zone at all at this very beginning of the polar winter, for it was only August 20 then. The coincidence of the isotherm is betrayed by the deposition of frost with the dividing line between the canal development curves. 
that dip down at this season and those that still continue to rise is suggestive. It becomes all the more so when the three cartouches are considered seriatim. The most polewards, the north polar one, had sunk to zero sometime before the first extensive frost occurred. The second, the Arctic, did so later than its northern neighbor, probably just before the epoch in question, while the third, practically outside the zone of deposition, was behind both the others in its descent. Inspection of the drawings upon which the cartouches are based confirms an inference deduced from this, that it was cold that killed, not frost, that covered them, which was responsible for their obliteration. The drawings show that the canals ceased to be seen before the white patches were evident. Now this would be the exact behavior of vegetation. It will be killed, turned brown by freezing, and so rendered invisible to us against its ochre desert background, before the cold had grown intense enough to cover that ground with a solid white carpet of frost. At the opposition of 1905, however, the extreme northern canals were visible after the snow had covered all the country about them, being evident as lines threading the new cap. These three cartouches, furthermore, show each a maximum, and what is significant, the maximum occurs later in time for each, according as the zone lies remote from the pole. A red star marks this maximum, and shows that the time of greatest development for the three zones was respectively 41 days after the summer solstice for the North Polar, 61 days after the summer solstice for the Arctic, 95 days after the summer solstice for the subarctic. We now pass to the other curves, those that were unaffected by cold, though in these the minima themselves show the law of latitudinal progression. The wave-like character of the advance is even better disclosed by the curves. As the eye follows them down the page, the advance of the wave to the right is plainly apparent. The slope of the wave is much the same for all, implying that a like force was at work, successively down the latitudes. It will be noticed next that, in all the mean cartouches, the gradient is greater after the minimum than before it. The curves fall gently to their lowest points and rise more steeply from them. Such profile indicates that the effects of a previous force were slowly dying down to the minimum and that then an impulse started in to act afresh. This explains the attitude of the canals that died out. In them, the effect of the old force shows as in the others, but no impulse came in their cause to resuscitation. It seems possible to trace this forest to an origin at the south. For beginning with the north subtropic zone, the gradient on the left shows less and less steep southward to the south subtropic zone. Such a dying down swell is what should be looked for in an impulse which had traveled from the south northward, since the wave would affect the more northern zones last, and less of a calm period would intervene between the two impulses from opposite poles. The cartouches, then, state that the canals began to develop after the greatest melting of the polar cap had occurred, that this development proceeded down the latitudes to the equator, and then, not stopping there, advanced up the latitudes of the other hemisphere. In the next place, they show that in the Arctic region, 
the development was arrested, and devolution or decay set in as it began to get cold there, the most northern canals being affected first. Finally, that a similar wave of evolution had occurred from the opposite pole some time before and had then passed away. And this evidence of the cartouches is direct and independent of any theory. End of section 25